This is a Clark University podcast. RFU contains grown-up themes and occasional coarse language when they get carried away. Please take care while listening. Hi, screen colleagues. This is Ed Carr, and I am Professor and Director of International Development, Community, and Environment here at Clark University. Recommended for you this week is the film The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. Made in 1984 in the United States and directed by W.D. Richter, the film stars, well, sort of everyone from the early to mid-1980s. Peter Weller, Ellen Barkin, John Lithgow, Jeff Goldblum, and Christopher Lloyd. But also, the guy whose face melted in Raiders of the Lost Ark. The guy who plays the subway ghost in the movie Ghost is here. If we had memes in the 1980s, this would have been a movie with all the memes. I am recommending this film for you because it is the best worst film I have ever seen. It's so bad it goes all the way around and becomes good for its badness. Good luck, colleagues. This. This. This is recommended for you. For you. For you. A podcast where Clark University Screen Studies professors watch and discuss films suggested by the. 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 Community! All right, guys. Our intro sounded a little bit different if folks were listening carefully. What are we up to this season? What what distinguishes this spring 2022 season of RFU from those that have come before? Rox is joining us from sabbatical. That's one thing. <laughs> That's right. Distinguishing it. <laughs> the cozy clothes of 24-7. <laughs> and secondly, this season we've decided to invite members of the Clark community who are not students to suggest films to us. This could include faculty. This could include staff. This could include fellow professors. Like one, Edward R. Carr, a geographer and anthropologist whose career and research focus on exploring alternative ways of achieving meaningful and enduring improvements to human well-being. I wonder if he uses an overthruster. <laughs> I mean, probably every morning. Uh, the Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension often shortened to Buckaroo Banzai, is a 1984 American science fiction film produced and directed by W.D. Richter and with some sum, Dr. Hugh S. Mannon. Thank you. Also, I'm Soren Sorensen. I'm Rock Sommer. Hugh, take it away. So at the beginning of these episodes, we always do a little sum sum, which means some summary. I love the fact that I have to explain it every time I introduce it. <laughs> Buckaroo Banzai, played by Peter Weller, is an internationally renowned physicist, neurosurgeon, rock star, comic book hero, who, as part of a government experiment in the Salt Flats, goes rogue and drives a specially equipped jet truck into a mountain. Thanks to a device called an overthruster, he is able to pass through the center of the mountain. No tunnel, he just penetrates straight through the rock, and we see a weird series of images that remind me of a 1980s teched-up version of the Stargate sequence from 2001 A Space Odyssey, or maybe the Tunnel of Terra from Willy Wonka. There appear to be alien humanoids inside the solid stone mountain. It's weird. After passing through the tunnel while inspecting the undercarriage of his jet truck, Banzai discovers an alien organism has attached itself. It is gooey and biological and looks like a mad ball designed by David Cronenberg. Meanwhile, Dr. Emilio Lizardo, aka John Warfin, played brilliantly by John Lithgow, in a home for the criminally insane, chats with a young Mike Ermintrout from Breaking Bad and sees a television news broadcast about Buckaroo Banzai's experiment. He jealously realizes that Banzai succeeded where he had failed at a similar experiment in 1938, a crucial year, remember that. Lizardo decides to take action and escapes. 
Elsewhere, Banzai has an all-male band of compatriots, those hard-rocking scientists, the Hong Kong Cavaliers. The primary ones are named Reno, Rawhide, and Perfect Tommy. They are about to perform at a nightclub when an audience rando, Penny Pretty, played by Ellen Barkin, has a tearful breakdown and tries to shoot herself in the head with a pistol but misfires and is taken to jail for attempting to assassinate Banzai. After bailing her out, Banzai realizes she is his late wife's long-lost identical twin sister, a plot thread that goes nowhere because this <laughs> film does not know what to do with women. <laughs> it might not even be true. <laughs> Jeff Goldblum, who plays a cowboy named New Jersey, is brought into the group and is, of course, one of the film's highlights, a delight as always. Later, during a press conference, Banzai takes a phone call and is electrically shocked via some sort of remote alien process, which allows him to directly see alien creatures that are secretly circulating in the human world. We hear some confusing intrigue regarding the possibility of aliens triggering other aliens to trigger the Russians to start World War III. Trigger warning. <laughs> a crucial and very fun plot element involves the revelation that Lithgow's ill-fated Grover's Mill experiment in 1938 involved the War of the Worlds broadcast, which was not fictional but real, and the aliens actually hypnotized Orson Welles into covering it up, which, how can you not love that concept? <laughs> the rest of the film, probably the last 30 minutes or so, is basically a series of battles and conflicts which pit Banzai and the Cavaliers, along with his new alien allies, the Black Lectroids, against the evil Red Lectroids, commanded by John Warfin and his lieutenant, John Big Booty. Big Bootay. Bootay! Please, you. please. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly you don't speak Italian. <laughs> It must be noted that the good aliens, the black Lectroids, manifest on Earth as racially black. They are played by black actors, whereas the evil aliens, the red Lectroids, manifest on Earth as racially white. As the film moves toward a climax, the red Lectroids kidnap Penny and torture her. Banzai and the Cavaliers get help from weirdly named groups such as the Blue Blaze Irregulars, the Kolodny Brothers, and the Rug Suckers. There is some outer space action with spaceships and pods, which is frankly the least interesting 10 minutes of the movie. Finally, Banzai triumphs and war is averted. Banzai kisses the apparently dead Penny and his electrical lip shock revives her. The end credits promise a sequel, but this film flops and it never happens. I was reminded um, when you when you were singing Jeff Goldblum's pr uh, praises of, of a previous Jeff Goldblum effort from 1983, uh, the Big Chill. Um, there's a scene between Sam, played by Tom Berenger, and Nick, played by William Hurt, when William Hurt's character, Nick, is on, up on drugs and watching TV, and Sam, played by uh, Tom Berenger, approaches and says, what's, what's this? this? I'm not sure. And Sam says, what's it about? I don't know. Who's that? I think the guy in the hat did something terrible. Who wants to be next? Like what? Bunch of fatheads. You're so analytical. Sometimes you just have to let art flow over you. <laughs> Sometimes you have to let art flow over you. <laughs> and that's what that's what I kept. That was my operating principle My my watching this film. I, I didn't really care if it was supposed to be funny, if it was camp, if it was supposed yeah. to be a big swing and that just sort of missed. Um, I actually kind of thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, uh, from on that level, as long as I kept that that Nick's line as, as my operating principle, sometimes sometimes you have to let art flow over you. Yeah, I mean, I would describe this movie. It, it very much makes sense as a film of its era. Uh, there's a way that this is like Star Wars meets Born in Flames, meets Indiana Jones, meets Brother from Another Planet, but also like Part Four. So <laughs> I think part of the challenge of of following along. Um, is that with the exception of the first 10 minutes, which is a rather extended 
introduction to at least like part of this world and honestly a strange part that's not going to be entirely like relevant or returned to later on it's this like you know it's the equivalent of like in star wars where all the, the you know the fighter planes are like lined up like there's this whole hoopla about this you know science car that's going to propel him into the rock um that were never really returned to that exact scenery and many of those early characters so there's this whole anticipation i think really building around who is this buckaroo bonsai and what is he capable of and what what is going to happen here and that very much feels like the the start of a film and perhaps the start of a franchise and an introduction of a new hero but then <laughs> once we get through that rock wall and we get you know peter weller's face um as he peels himself from his car uh and discovers that alien on the undercarriage or alien plant form <laughs> um we're pretty soon like thrown into like a plot that that is like that of a third or fourth movie in a franchise where it sort of seems presumed that we know who these guides are that we know who new jersey is already that we know who perfect tommy is that we have a sense of what's possible and feasible in this universe and i i found it very disorienting um and had to let it wash over me like soren said in this way that I felt thrown into a world and I had, I had missed the first few films and it's time for me to catch up. Um, that being said, having watched it a second time and, and being aware of where this story was going and that it actually was very familiar trappings of an adventure action film, I found it pretty enjoyable the second time around uh, in a traditional way and i was then able to see these other differences that distinguished it from more infamous and more famous more bread and butter new hollywood fare of before but were you guys you know seeing and hearing star wars and alien indiana jones in this absolutely and and i i actually um was sort of about to or, or getting ready or, or prepared to get on my soapbox about how much better movies were in 1983 and all this kind of thing or 1984 <laughs> and I, I looked at the domestic box office for 2021 in the United you know for the United States um, and it was Spider-Man, Shang-Chi, Venom, Black Widow and Fast and the Furious right the <laughs> top five and I'm thinking 1984 how great it's going to be how interesting and varied <laughs> and stuff and it was no. Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones, Gremlins, The Karate Kid, Police Academy all yeah. franchise films all, all films with sequences uh, sequels um, so yeah, it, it was it was funny in that way where I, I sort of thought this is another one that I'm glad it exists, but I'm not surprised that it landed on uh, 107th in the domestic box yeah. office that year with a with a total gross of six a little over six million dollars. Yeah, I mean, in the early 80s, we were already in the beginning of the end that we are still experiencing. Oh, you're absolutely right. I don't know what I was thinking. I, I guess I was thinking <laughs> it was more like 50 years ago when The Godfather was the you know the <laughs> number one film at the box office. But it, but it really is. I mean, it's it's strange that this film somehow. Uh, sets itself up from scene one and and just assumes that it has this kind of franchise potential. I don't even think that's really it. It's it's that it knows its own backstory like incredibly well. Like these characters like clearly pre-exist the story yeah. world of the film, and we're dropped in in the middle of an ongoing story that kind of feels like you know 
like a like a brand already because you, you think about like here's here's the ultimate signifier of that that kind of bb buckaroo buckaroo bonsai logo that appears yeah. all over the place on stickers yeah. and it's kind of like you know they've developed this whole iconography about characters that don't really exist yet and i think that's great like i i kind of can't believe it the, the only film i can think of that really compares to it that's sort of contemporaneous is and we watch this uh as part of unteachable films is death race 2000 where you've got mm-hmm. these characters like David Carradine playing Frankenstein who the <laughs> film just assumes, you know who they are and Matilda right. the Hun yeah. and Ma- machine gun, Joe Viterbo. Like we're yeah. supposed to <laughs> kind of come into the film and be like, Oh yeah, it's the most natural thing in the world. Machine gun, Joe Viterbo. And the film owns these characters in such a way. Buckaroo Banzai owns these characters in such a way that we're almost like behind when the film starts, but I always think like when I teach screenwriting, I always say that that's kind of a good thing. Like you want your audience to have to do some work to catch up and in doing work to catch up, mental work to catch up, um, you're engaged. Like the one thing that's not yeah. going to happen is, is presumably, unless there's too much of this, you're not going to fall asleep because you're working so hard to figure out what the hell's going on here. Mm. And this film really drops you in. And, um, so I like that a lot. I, I, I mm. almost can't imagine the audacity that it would take to approach <laughs> storytelling that way. Well, it's also a financial decision, right? Because by 1984, we're you know, seven years out from um, the original Star Wars and that, for, that came out in 1977 and all of the ancillary market success that came with that, you know, related to merchandising, specifically toys, many of which I owned and, you know, burned and, and they've been given since given <laughs> away. And, uh, but, but you know, it's pretty amazing even even thinking of it in 1984, even even for all those films with sequels and, and we, the way that we think about franchises now, yes, to start with something with this kind of baked in mythology that you're supposed to just be there for and kind of and, and ready to go on that ride. And I think it's incredibly tr- it's sort of treacherous and it might not work completely in this film, but there is, it's definitely present. Um, it's, it's, yeah. For, I would say for like the first half hour, I was like, this really, you know, this film had a budget. It was not spent in pre-production. <laughs> like I was like, the, you know, my initial impression in being a little too confused at moments was, was to think that the script could have used some ironing out at the same time, I think about, you know, those franchise films now 40 years later that we see like flooding the market still. And I, and I think they spend all, they spend years in that stage. And as a result, really like dry up. Um, There isn't the juice. There isn't the surprise. There's the feeling like palpable sense in all of the plot and the characters and their development that, um, you know, producers really are trying to hit certain markets, hit certain notes, take a mass audience on a journey. And this film doesn't have any of that. So that when we get that Orson Welles War of the Worlds like moment halfway through the film, you're utterly surprised. You're like, I had no idea this movie had that in it. Yeah, like, yeah. oh, these are these are nerd nerds. These aren't like nerds TM. Yeah, like, yeah. They, they should have like, why weren't they leaning on that in the first act? <laughs> like, why wasn't that introduced so early? Right. And then seeing Ronald Lacey, um, who's famous for his performance in Raiders of the Lost Ark um, as the president, but looking completely like a full color, but but in you know just out of a tanning bed, Orson Welles from Citizen Kane. <laughs> was really astounding like I, I I was looking I was on IMDB as I am often with the you know watching this entire film and I was waiting for him to show up and I thought this is not Ronald Lacey from Raiders of the Lost Ark and of course it is but he's just under a lot of makeup in the mustache and everything else and he's, he's kind of doing the Orson Welles voice and I'm kind of 
sitting in a room alone like, hey, you, do you see this? Does everybody see this? Am I the only one? You know, so I, I really, I mean, that part was great, but I almost thought, yeah, it should have been, it should have been leaned on a lot earlier than, than you know, the middle or the end. Yeah, one thing that kind of struck me as, as I'm watching this is how, you know, of course, they're a band. I, I don't know if I put enough emphasis uh, <laughs> emphasis on this in the summary, but, um, you know, his band of compadres is a literal rock band, right? So it, he's the neurosurgeon and physicist who goes and plays <clears throat> music on the weekends in clubs and maybe has some big recording career. I don't know. Does he have vinyl out? I guess probably. <laughs> but like if you were going to compare... Buckaroo Banzai's cast of characters to a band, you wouldn't compare it to like Aerosmith, you'd compare it to Kiss, right? So a band that's got like deep characterization already written <laughs> out before you show up at the concert. Yeah, they, they were characters. They, it was more like I, I was getting like Eddie Money vibes or like kind of it was like it was like they were they would be classic rock, like they'd be better music if they were born like five or ten years earlier, kind of thing. Like they they were kind of victims of being being ascendant in the eighties, and so there was a lot of synth horns and all kinds of garbage like that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um I, I couldn't help but thinking about um Hugh and your work with like thinking about locations in the local because they kept mentioning yeah. like New Jersey location, New Jersey. which I thought was in, it was just I've never seen a movie that was more New Jersey in my life. And they mentioned <laughs> Southern New England at one point and Connecticut and all these. And I was like, who who was writing and who was producing this that like had to put their stamp on it with New Brunswick's totally. own Buckaroo Bonsai? And it turns out he's from New Brunswick. So yeah, I mean, and that's tied into the Orson Welles backstory. Yeah. Like that was supposedly taking place in right, Grover's where, where Mill, New happened. Jersey. Right, exactly. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. There's so much I think to talk about with sound in this film including like the music including the sound design the score writ large but also i know hugh loves to talk about like voice off like off-screen use of voice and you know i don't know you know jeff goldblum had a career this is no by no means the start but i'm wondering to what extent was he already so identifiable via his voice like he is today mm. because we meet him through his voice. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm like, Hugh, what do you what do you think of this use of voice? See, this is the point where for me it started to look like a problem. I mean, you know, I wanted to sacrifice the precentral vein in order to get some exposure. But because of this guy's normal variation, I got excited and all of a sudden I didn't know whether I was looking at the precentral vein or one of the internal cerebral veins or the vein of Galen or the basilar vein of Rosenthal. So on my own, me at this point, I was ready to say, that's it, let's get out. There's a lot to Jeff Goldblum's look, no question about it, and yeah. how he acts and so forth. But he's a voice-first actor. And I wonder if we did look back, because he's in Big Chill. He was in another film around 82. He comes up in the context of, like, Robert Altman. So he's in California Split. He's in Nashville. He's in Nashville. Yeah. He plays the motorcycle guy, right, with the big trike in Nashville. And that's the first place I know of that he kind of broke. And so like so many major actors in Hollywood, his first appearance, his first major appearances are in Altman films. Um, but I don't know that he's got, I don't know that he's that recognizable by the time this comes out. Right. So he's not the Jeff Goldblum of Jurassic Park by any stretch. He was in Death Wish in 1974 as freak number one. And then California Split <laughs> in 1974 as well. And then Nashville in 75. Those were his th first three uh, uh, film roles. Yeah. And Annie Hall in 77 as a party guest. But these are, I mean, largely like bit parts, character roles, you know, and he's not like a major character in any of those films. And so only now, only with the film like this or Big Chill, does he kind of get significant like, you know, role in the plot. And yeah. I just think like, yeah, what's going on with his voice? It, it It's worthy of a thesis. Like it's, he's, he's one, of, he's one of the all time great Hollywood voices, period. You know, that they're in a band and that we have that sort of key scene um, that, that I think really stands out 
from much of the rest of the film is is interesting to me. There, there's sort of this nostalgia, like 60s nostalgia in 80s music mm. and like appropriation of like black music styles to signify like white leftism <laughs> and um, affinity or like that, that may just be affective, but may also be political. And so I sort of appreciated, even as I am less of a fan of the eighties mode of rock, um, that this was, I was like, I was sort of anticipating it to somehow shift gears and go way sixties when I'm like, okay, we're going to do a music <laughs> scene. It's, it's an eighties bro film. I know where this is going to go. And it stayed really contemporary. And I think there's a ways that the, the fashion, um, feels like a genuine investment in like aesthetics of its present mm. rather than a turn back, which is so, you know, sort of strange to think in a sci-fi context, but I also think there's something about new Hollywood sci-fi uh, that, that uh, despite what its directors and writers might say about their politics is, is this sort of uh, conservative uh, longing for what, uh, for like a more peaceful uh, and understandable, uh, safer and knowable time. Um, and this is a film that's like, no, like, let's talk about the eighties. Let's be in the Oh my 80s. God. You know, yeah. uh, Weller came out and said at some point that he thought he conceived of the character and the look and the sort of comportment of Buckaroo Banzai as a combination of Elia Kazan, Jacques Cousteau and Adam Ant. <laughs> And I, I think that is so on the money because yeah. Adam Ant, like the whole Adam Ant thing, I was a big fan back in the yeah. day. And the whole Adam Ant thing is that it's almost every album, like a new persona gets adopted. Right. And so it feels very much like, you know, uh, the whole Buckaroo Banzai crew in the sense that, you know, th they look a certain way for 1984, but in 1985, maybe a new version will come out in 1986. It's a weird sort of proposition to say, you know, I was trying to look like Adam Ant when Adam Ant is a constant moving target. And in some ways, like to say that one is modeling themselves after Adam Ant sort of admits that what's going on in the 80s is this constant change. Yeah. This sort of relates to what's going on here with this film and masculinity, because there's a couple different things going on in the 80s. There's both in the sort of nostalgia conservative vein, there's this real push and, and not just from like the far right, but sort of culturally to like return to when men were men and women were women. And that's why we get Die Hard and Rambo and, you know, action films of that sort of pumped up muscular hard sort but this is an action film of like soft masculinity mm. and like soft masculinities right like yeah. this whole crew is modeling a range of ways to be <laughs> or do manhood that that never veer towards <laughs> the rambo-esque right right um and so it, it's sort of more in sync with like the david bowie the prince you know those sort of avenues opening up um yeah yeah and exploring the in-between of mask and femme excuse me excuse me uh is someone out there not having a good time and, uh, is, uh, somebody, somebody crying out there in the darkness What's the name of that um, very dark, very loud mall store in the 90s? You know what I'm talking about. Hot Topic? 
Oh, Hot not Topic. Hot Topic. Hot Topic's no. <laughs> the, the sort of cheesy rip punk off. rock oh. ripoff. So I'm talking about. Um, oh, I know what you mean. The uh, one with all the shirtless ads and the kind of like oh, Abercrombie, Abercrombie and Fitch. When you see Perfect Tommy at the end in that sort of weird teaser trailer thing about the movie that's to come that is never made, and he's shirtless, like they're really going for like a kind of sexied up masculinity that I think is really like frankly not so common at this point, like 1984. Oh my God, I want every one of Perfect Tommy's outfits. I do think Perfect Tommy is it's perfect. Pretty, yeah, perfect yeah. Tommy and is that, perfect. that white that white jacket the look at the end yeah. with a big yeah. like sort of choker necklace, but yeah, no shirt. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You can't not evoke um, Back to the Future when you're watching this movie. I, I mean, there's just, I was just gonna there's, go a, there. there's an item in that in that vehicle that he drives into through you know whatever et cetera yep. the mountain um, <laughs> that has a an object in it that looks precisely like the flux capacitor and the 1.21 gigawatts. And then all of a sudden, here's Christopher Lloyd, and you get this idea. You get this idea that like there are these filmmakers kind of circling this concept, <laughs> you know, of of you know really fast cars and like you know uh d- pluralist dudes and and you know nerd adjacent this and we have yep. a, a, an older scientist friend um and and somehow you, you you feel like back to the future this script and back to the future must have sprung from the same well in some way so yeah yeah it's a litter a litter of names we have buckaroo bonsai <laughs> instead of marty mcfly exactly. and i wrote yeah like buckaroo bonsai is Marty McFly, but with way better racial politics. Yeah, and yeah. of course, in Back to the Future, you have the opposite of the racial politics of Buckaroo Banzai, right? Yes. It, yeah. And you know, a welcome disinterest in women, if if interest in women is the Marty McFly yeah. model. Yeah. You also kind of um, get that. I mean, that '80s pastiche sort of thing. So pastiche is becoming like a, a real, legit trend within postmodernism. Um, and so you see not only are there throwbacks to just a couple years before and that when's back to the future 85 a year later oh, it's a year later yeah. so it's forecasting yeah. back to the future it's anticipatory and at the same time throwing back to like classic universal monster movies so there's this kind of whole mad scientist component to it and the two things that I noticed were that his goggles in the in the jet truck are exactly the same shape as the goggles of Claude Rains in the the original Invisible Man. These kind of weird, like, U-shaped things that go out this way. And then, clearly, like, Lithgow, uh, when he's playing Emilio Lazardo escaping from the institution, is Renfield from Dracula. That kind of, <laughs> and kind of, like, slinking he around. He deserves and, his own spinoff film, I'm oh telling you. God, Lithgow in this teeth? movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really intense. Of course, intense. He, also st- he also was in the first act and doesn't return for, like, an hour in this it's movie. That's another weird, weird thing. He's that just gone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and I think, too, like, the, that pastiche is kind of, like, it's there in the hodgepodge aesthetics of the film. So this film is full of stuff, right? So like from a mise-en-scene standpoint, there's just so much junk. And like Emilio Lizardo, like he's in this room that's full of his kind of personal possessions. And there's like Chianti bottles all over the place in the little baskets. <laughs> and there's like screaming yellow Zonkers boxes, which were like a Cracker Jack ripoff from the 80s. John Grisham paperbacks, a velvet painting of The Last Supper, and sour cream and <laughs> onion potato chips. And it's just like that's that to me that is the eighties. Like I feel like I'm soaking in it. What do you mean? I, I was eating sour cream and onion potato chips yesterday. <laughs> I, 
I was also like, could I, if I need to go to an institution, could it be this one? Because it's like a loft. Oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah. I was going to say the same thing. I was like, is he free to leave whenever he wants? And it's like, apparently not because he commits a murder in order to walk out. But the rest of them are just like, here's a package for you, sir. And you know, they're, uh, he's just getting whatever he wants. He, uh, we had to take the TV a little for away for a little while. And he's like, no, no worries. I'm leaving anyway. And they're like, haha. <laughs> so let's talk about black aliens and red aliens yep. and like what's going on here with Cold War politics. And also these like ties back to the 30s. So it's not just like War of the Worlds and Orson Welles, Mm -hmm. but there's this invocation of earlier forms of fascism uh, in the Lord John Warfin alien character. Yep. This film is kind of like a movie serial, right? Like a 30s movie serial. It has that feel. It has the kind of cliffhanger thing, aliens from outer space. Like you kind of imagine things being a, a combination of like Flash Gordon, and like mad scientist films of the 30s. So like the, the roots of this are in the 30s. And and I think in a way that they could only be for people who either grew up in that generation or at least had their toes wet in that generation. So the people who I assume that the guy who wrote this was old enough to either remember the 30s or kind of at least have contact with like movies of that generation. But boy, it does a, a number on the politics of the 30s and kind of bringing them into the 80s. Yeah, and it's and it's quite a flex to say you know stay tuned for the next adventure of Buckaroo Banzai. <laughs> right. I, I, I at the very end of the film, I, I really want to do that in every one of my movies from now on. Right. Actually, like the the next one's coming out in a few years. Like you know, stay tuned. It sort of replaces or it or it, it uses John Lithgow's character as this fascist proxy at the you know when he's delivering this speech in this certain kind of coat with certain kind of you know regalia and medals on it, and um and and it is the the, the sort of the red alien you know the red aliens versus the black aliens and and it it does it does completely subvert or or invert the the racial politics of of a movie like back to the future that essentially claims that marty mcfly is delivering rock and roll um to people that it was actually (laughs) sort of his idea you know originally he he gave the idea to chuck berry or something like that um you know and and in this it's like the, the the black aliens are the protagonist and at the end the young the young kid says you know he says you want to ride with me you know and have his job and it's like i gotta ask my dad first and of course and these these two black characters are sort of front and center at the end, and and they're the hero they're the heroes along with the rest of the ensemble. So it's yeah, it's a much different kind of film than than we we're normally seeing. And it's you know it's it, you know I think it's very easy at straight at face value to be to say this is like a movie about a group of white guys, um, you know who ha- who direct who like move the plot forward and all those sort of traditional things. But the truth is like at the level of plot, at one point. Like they get a message very much in the sort of hologram a la Princess Leia in Star Wars from um, a black woman alien who gives them their directive. Salutations, great buckaroo banzai. I am John M. Dunn from Planet 10. A common grave danger confronts both our worlds. The self-proclaimed Lord John Wolfen. A bloodthirsty butcher as evil as your Hitler. Oh, wow. Was overthrown by freedom-loving forces. And now you, Bakaru Banzai, have unintentionally helped John Wolfen with the success of your oscillation over Truster. Stop John Wolfen before sunset. If you fail, we will be forced to help you destroy yourselves. It's... 
uh, it sort of flips the script in a way. And so like, even as we are like, yes, following Buckro Banzai on this adventure from that point on, he is like, it's like a very like masochistic, um, or that's probably too loaded of a term, but like this, um, like I'm at your service, right? Like everything he does, he's not like the white hero, but he's, he has to do like he is he's like got it yeah, <laughs> on board exactly like he's it. enlisted um and he has skills if he'd like to use them and if not she has other avenues towards her future and her protection of her people yeah that th- that message from a black woman rather than you know princess leia who then has to be rescued it's kind of like you know we, we we need help this is a this is a bigger fight than you but we you know if you can help us help us right i mean it's pretty amazing i think she even ends her speech saying like end of discussion and, and someone is it i think it's one of his side guys it's like discussion what discussion yeah. <laughs> like, right she just told him what to do and they're gonna do it yeah i can't think of a film where someone where a protagonist essentially takes a directive and abdicates. I don't know if that's the right yeah. word for it. Sort of sort of lays down their protagonistness mm. yeah. and and just becomes willing to be the, the soldier is a, is a rough word for it, but you know, the, the kind of functionary or the person who kind of does the work, the worker in effect, yeah. right? It's just amazing. He is he is a sort of a, a superhero. I mean, you know, we we just are coming off of you know, a new Matrix film being released and, and Red Blue, or, or sorry, Red Pill and Blue Pill and these kinds of things. But, um, you know, I couldn't help but think of, unfortunately, while I was watching Peter Weller in this film, think of people reading this as, well, this is Jeffrey Bezos or this is, um, you know, uh, Elon Musk or this is some hyper capitalist who's who's good at everything and he's going to save the day with science and money and, you know, and this thing and that thing. And it's like, it's almost... It can be. It could be misconstrued as this is a superhero um, along the lines of well, he's he does space travel and he does this and he goes really fast in cars and he's you know. So I mean, I, I, I that's not how I read it, but I kind of was in, I was sort of thinking about it being interpreted in that way, and I don't mean misinterpreted. I just mean interpreted. Yeah. Yeah. Except there's this interesting, and it's not you know. I'm, I'm glad that we brought it up later rather than earlier because it's like when the we least... lose one of our 38 <laughs> listeners <is that> what... <laughs> uh, no because it's just like one of the least cinematic elements of this film and so therefore not especially interesting but it, it relates to what we're talking about here and that is the scrolling text at the start of the film that sort of tells us who these characters are their backstory and you could imagine <laughs> that that like in that sort of entering it's still still with that there felt like I was entering on the third or fourth film and they were just sort of reminding me of what happened a few years ago in the last installment and so part of what's going on here is Buckaroo Banzai is a mixed race protagonist at least at story level and he comes from is it an american dad and a japanese mom or did i i think you've got it right i got it right i think i thought it was reversed but yeah yeah it's not really it's not super important at all right but um he's like japanese american of course yes peter weller is playing him but like but i also think japan is not incidental both in harkening back to the 30s and these concerns with, you know, who our global antagonists were back then, but also shifts in the, you know, in economy and in the 80s, there was this real, so it's interesting because there was this real fear, I understand, on uh, in on Americans' behalf of Japan as a rising power that didn't totally come to fruition in ways that were anticipated and feared, but um, 
but at the same time, again, it's sort of just like it it's what enables his martial arts skills, what gives him some of his cultural interests, supposedly, but also gives him his like trauma that is also perhaps tied here as to why he so quickly abdicates, why he might be <laughs> so on board uh, with uh, freedom for those who are oppressed based on their race, um, is that, yeah, he comes not just because he is mixed race, but also because, from what I understand, his parents died in the pursuit of alien life on earth and he is continuing their work and maybe with a sort of social justice mission (laughs) at hand um in a way that doesn't come off as super vindictive like you killed my mommy (laughs) but like i am genuinely (laughs) continuing my mother's work (laughs) um so yes (laughs) black alien tell me what to do and i will do it yeah i i think it's it's yeah, it's unusual. I mean, I, I guess when 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 uh, Ed Carr suggested this film, and I looked it up, knowing only the title really, I didn't even know the full title: "The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension." Um, Buckaroo Banzai. I, 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 you know, reading a description of it, you know, a couple of paragraphs description of it, I never thought that we would probably we would touch on were the world's <laughs> gender politics, race. Uh, and and this sort of just all of this, but I guess I wouldn't have it any other way. I mean, it, it didn't it didn't really it didn't I didn't think of it as being this um, sort of high minded, but actually coming away from this discussion, I think that it probably is. I also want to kind of fess up that this is the only film we sort of made an asterisk exception for this film because this is the only we, we, normally our rule is you can't have seen the film before we discuss. You know, we we screen films that we have not seen before. I have seen this film before, and I saw it probably... A long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. 88, 87. <laughs> yeah, something like that. And yeah. one of my roommates in college uh, introduced this to the household, and he loves this film and loved this film. And we were really into it, too, at the time. And uh, I have a newfound, I think, appreciation for it because I just didn't realize. I don't think I realized at all at the time. Like what I liked about it then was sort of like the quotability, the silliness, the fact that people are walking through a lab and the guy says, what's that watermelon doing there? And the other guy says, I'll tell you later. later. And they just keep walking. And it's just this weird. It's like a microcosm of like there's a universe beyond this film and you don't. Oh, yeah. You'll never understand. Right. And also just this disconnected (laughs) randomness, which I really enjoyed and still enjoyed joy to some extent um and it's there in the names and it's there in these you know the kind of the long list i think one of the things that we found absolutely hilarious and fascinating was the long list of johns so like yes, you'll see yes. on a screen it's like john yaya john parrot <laughs> john big booty john smallberries and we just thought that was the funniest Poor john thing smallberries right yes. <laughs> and i think like there's that famous quote he says in the context of uh i think it's the concert scene like people are starting to get angry and miffed at ellen barkin's character hey, 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 no. don't be mean we don't have to be mean because remember no matter where you go, there you are. No matter where you go, there you are. <laughs> and I looked this up because I actually thought I'd never heard that before this film. I kind of just assumed that this film. So it's not the case that this film made originated that up. Yeah, like yeah. Pe- somebody else originated it and it was printed in some sort of like college yearbook in Philadelphia in the 50s or whatever. But I'm really certain that this film 
popularize that phrase. Like no matter where you go, there you are. And I think it's, you know, there's some sort of weird Zen philosophy built into that, that, that really resounds for people in the eighties. It's like, it is what it is of of the eighties. Yeah. Well, what it reminded me, yeah, that's true too. (laughs) What it reminded me of is another 1984 film that completely rocked my world, which was uh, Jim Jarmusch's Stranger Than Paradise, in which Mm -hmm. one of the characters says, you know, know, it's funny. funny. You come someplace new and, and everything looks just the same. You come to someplace new and everything looks just the same. <laughs> and I kind of thought those are two. That's the more existential dark side of the message that you get in Buckaroo Banzai. Also, do you know what the last dialogue of the movie is? Mm-mm. So we have the like re-envisioned heterosexual kiss where he brings her back to life with the like alien electricity. Uh, and as our conversation has sort of suggested, <laughs> Penny Pretty not a huge character tied in with another mysterious backstory trauma having to do with his uh, wife who perhaps also committed suicide or is otherwise deceased. Uh, And we could recognize her as a sort of filler character, like any sort of male buddy movie where she needs to be there. There's like this obligatory heterosexuality to like assure that this is just homosocial bonding between all these dudes who love (laughs) each other and not homosexual bonding at the same time. And there's like the torture scene. She could have been like, if she is serving a function, we know that function, but it could be like so much worse, right? Like Mm. even the shots where she's clearly like stretched out naked on a table with the spite, it's so disgusting, but it's not actually like as scary or as sexualized as you would expect. There's all this thingness, this mise-en-scene that Mm. Hugh, you referenced earlier. It's actually covering her body such that we know she's nude and yet we don't see anything. (laughs) But this relates to the zenness. So at the end, we do get the the heterosexual like romantic kiss and they close the blinds and fall off screen. They're going to do it. But then a black alien like it fades in. Like, yeah. we also got the sense that the aliens were like, okay, you helped us out. You get your girl. Yeah. Um, and the alien says, So what? Big deal. So what? Yeah. Big deal. That's the last like, line of the movie. <laughs> that's the last line Which is line just, that's such another flex big to deal. me. Like, I want to do that in a movie. Yeah, that <laughs> is big deal. That is hard. Fade to black. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a flex. I was like, this. These guys are. Yeah, they've got. Yeah. Bigger berries than than John Smallberry. <laughs> what? One last thing about those final credits. Those final credits, they're all meeting together in one of those like drained LA river concrete spaces. It's all big music video vibes. Even the dead (laughs) are there. So over the course of this movie, they have lost a few members of their team. And yet they're resurrected and maybe they're back for like movie number two. It's like, you know, the coyote in the road run, the coyote (laughs) coyote dies and then back in the next scene, no problem. (laughs) It's so wild. I believe Ed Carr said this is a film uh, we will want to subject to others. Would you subject others to this film? Yeah, would you RFU? Yes, definitely. It was Everyone fun. should see yeah. this immediately. <laughs> I would highly recommend it, Ed Carr. Yeah, this is the one for the sleepover parties, the family gatherings. Thanks, Ed. Thanks, Ed. I don't know if this is what you were expecting, but thank you so much. We had a blast. Recommended for you is a Clark University podcast. All opinions expressed are those of the faculty participants. If you'd like to recommend a film for an upcoming episode of RFU, email us at rfu at clarku.edu. That's rfu at clarku.edu. 
or leave a voicemail with your suggestion at 508-798-4355. The Recommended for You podcast is produced by Andrew Hart for Clark University. Music by Jimmy Jackson. RFU logo by AJ Simmons. The, 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 community, 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 community. What's this jalopy supposed to do anyway? So what? Big deal.